the last word on Today FM with Matt Cooper. Delighted to be joined for the Culture Club tonight by Jamie O'Connell, short story writer who has turned to his debut novel, Diving for Pearls, which is a big hit at present. Jamie, thank you very much for joining us here on The Last Word of Today FM. For those not familiar with your debut novel, tell us all about it, please, because it's got a big cast of characters coming together into one story. So the novel is based around Dubai. I visited there repeatedly in the kind of early 2010s and it just was such an extraordinary place and just so different from Ireland. I grew up in kind of North Cork, the land of white bungalows and trees. And I suppose I went there and it's this shining, sparkling city of skyscrapers in the desert. And it's it's kind of oddness and difference to hear is what kind of uh, inspired me to write this book. And the book kind of came about really it's it's all really about this sort of mysterious death of a girl that happens in dubai marina and how her life then feeds out into uh the the lives of people around her who are at first not directly connected but bit by bit through the book there's these seven characters who you slowly realize they all had some connection to the girl on the day she died i mean you can read it on the level of uh hopefully an entertaining read if you're on holiday you know it's something to a bit of dubai sun but at the same time i you know i hope i've captured the spirit of a city which at the time was you know very optimistic uh at a time when ireland was so down on its luck and uh yeah so what do you prefer now dubai or north cork i love nature so i have to say uh when i was in dubai even if i was there for two weeks i was dying to come back and uh, walk along some hedgerows or maybe walk through a forest or something like that. So I think, I'm not sure I personally could have lived there long term. I think uh, the the craving for the green fields of Ireland uh, kind of took over. Well, as you're a writer, let's start the Culture Club today with your favourite authors. And you've got a number of books for us that you've picked out. You've got a classic and a contemporary novel. Tell us about your classic selection first. Well, my classic selection is In Search of Lost Time by Marcel Proust. And I probably would never have even attempted this book, only when I did my master's in creative writing in 2009, I was lectured and, and kind of tutored by Edna O'Brien at the time. And I was very lucky. And she always spoke about Proust being one of her favourite authors. And she sort of recommended the best way to start reading Proust was to actually go to the audiobooks. So at the time, I mean, to read these books, I think there's maybe a million or so words in the in the novel, in the various volumes. So I didn't at the time get to read it. But when I returned from Australia in 2010, I had a bit of time. You know, it took a while to kind of get work sorted uh, at the time. Obviously, Ireland was in the midst of a recession. So I made it my business at the time to sort of have a go at this. And I started with the CDs and then I kind of graduate once I got into the flow of it, because it's it's a tough book to get into. It's, you know, people say he's a bit like the, the French uh, James Joyce. So it, it's not the easiest text. But once you listen to the audio, you really get into the style of how he's writing. Hold and on, then is, that, it makes... is that not cheating? I'm, I'm shocked to hear that even somebody like Endo O'Brien saying that that's the way to approach a book. I would have thought the written word was sacrosanct, no? I wouldn't be a purist that way. I think... Anything, if you have a way to read and, you know, if your way of reading is going into work in the morning and listening to an audiobook, then that's that's fine by me. You know, as an author, if someone engages my with my work through audio or through reading, it's all good. It's all good. Uh, and for me, it was a way into the text, whereas actually, if you read sort of the opening volume, 
the first 30 pages are literally about him trying to get to sleep and that's all that happens so you need someone to, <laughs> to, right. to kind of give you a bit of guidance you know so it's really really kind of slow text and uh i know it was a good influence on my own work at the time because even with the structure of the sentences he writes long sentences which sort of without even trying kind of influenced my own work whereas he used to write quite short sentences fragments and just reading his style was i think good for for, for my own writing Jamie O'Connell, a contemporary book that you've chosen for us, please. I've chosen Remains of the Day uh, by Ishiguro. And the reason I chose that was, I, I think James Joyce said that uh, art is the transference of emotion. And, you know, that that's the point of art. And I think art is communication, writing is communication. But in fiction, it's communication that has the sort of rational and the irrational, the sort of emotional elements. And it's the weaving of the two that creates a great story. And... I think Ishiguro in this book is a master. He he understands emotion as a, as a kind of a, a musical note, you know, and he, a lesser writer uh, with the main characters, because it's kind of like a life that's been missed. You know, we have the butler, Mr. Stevens, who is in love with the housekeeper, Mrs. Kenton, and it never happens. You know, she's the housekeeper, he's the butler in this great house. And throughout the life, she clearly wants to start a relationship with him, but he's just too caught in the formalities of the time. And the book ends with him kind of realising he's missed out on his life. And the Ishiguro has managed to hold back the emotion for this whole book. It's held back and held back and held back until this finale, when finally he kind of sticks the knife in and it's devastating. The book is devastating. And... I, at the time, uh, I, I remember actually listening to an audiobook some years later and I actually just pull over on the motorway. It just left me so moved. I was like, I just need a moment to well, close myself. Well, we actually myself. have a little bit of the audiobook read by Dominic West. It is, of course, the responsibility of every butler to devote his utmost care in the devising of a staff plan. Who knows how many quarrels, false accusations, unnecessary dismissals, how many promising careers cut short can be attributed to a butler's slovenliness at the stage of drawing up the staff plan. Indeed, I can say I am in agreement with those who say that the ability to draw up a good staff plan is the cornerstone of any decent butler's skills. I have myself devised many staff plans over the years, and I do not believe I am being unduly boastful if I say that very few ever needed amendment. And if in the present case the staff plan is at fault, blame can be laid at no one's door but my own. At the same time, it is only fair to point out that my task in this instance had been of an unusually difficult order. What had occurred was this. Once the transactions were over, transactions which had taken this house out of the hands of the Darlington family after two centuries, Mr. Faraday let it be known that he would not be taking up immediate residence here, but would spend a further four months concluding matters in the United States. In the meantime, however, he was most keen that the staff of his predecessor, a staff of which he had heard high praise, be retained at Darlington Hall. This staff, he referred to, was of course nothing more than the skeleton team of six kept on by Lord Darlington's relatives to administer to the house up to and throughout the transactions. And I regret to report that once the purchase had been completed, there was little I could do for Mr Faraday to prevent all but Mrs Clements leaving for other employment. OK, that's The Remains of the Day, read by Dominic West. Television. The Royal Family is one of your selections. Why is it? I think 
as a writer, it, it's really, I actually wonder sometimes when they came in with the script, you know, and did a table reading of the royal family, how the the actors looked down and went and saw so minimal a script. And, you know, it, it all takes place just family watching television, how such an incredibly, where a perfect script meets perfect casting and the the cast is able to sort of bring out every nuance of the the conversations that happened which seemed so mundane and yet between the mundane conversations about what's happening in the television what they've eaten for dinner there's a whole subtext going on and we it's really about what's said between the lines that is so sort of imaginatively stimulating and it's i just think as a writer it there's not a word too many used it's it's lean and the writers make full use of every word. So for me, it's a perfect, perfect sitcom. And its strength is how confined it is to its location. And in fact, when they try and move location, doesn't necessarily was for me work as well. Uh, I think one of the kind of great moments of British television is actually the the episode where the nan, the, the grandmother, dies in it. And we have this very carefully shot scene of uh, her living with the family because she's in her final months. And she's talking about the relief of not going into an old folks home that they've invited her into the house. And we see her talking and actually behind her, her daughter's brushing her hair and the daughter is in bits like she's crying for her mother and the mother, you know, is, is completely unaware. It's one of the most beautiful scenes and moving scenes, I think, in, in television. Yeah, Liz and Smith played the grandmother, Sue Johnson played Barbara. Of course, it was the late Caroline Ahern, Ricky Tomlinson, Craig Cash, Ralph Little, all in as well. The clip that we have is one in which Barbara reads out Cheryl's personal ad. Mm. What happened to that bloke you was writing to for ages, Cheryl? What happened there? Oh, well, I sent him a picture, like he asked, and then I never heard anything. <laughs> well... It wasn't much future in it, really. Wasn't it for life? Yeah. Here it is. <laughs> Look. What does it say, Bab? Oh, hang on, hang on. Charismatic 30s female. No, read shadows out. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Bubbly, cuddly, likes going out for meals or staying in for meals. Both vegetarian and meat eaters considered. Oh, good thinking, babes. Looking for friendship stroke love with male aged any. Able bodied or otherwise. Skin colour not essential. No height restrictions. You're not a roller coaster, are you, Chad? <laughs> Own vehicle not necessary as father will pick up and drop off. Oh, you know what the problem is here, don't you? You're playing too bloody hard to get, girl. Oh, the royal family. Uh, tell me, Jamie O'Connor, what would the, um, as a teenager and a child, what was the television that you remember most watching? Uh, probably... Goodness, it's kind of embarrassing, but I probably would watch Star Trek a lot in my teenage years. I think it was, uh, I think my opinion on how life is has changed since then. But there's something of the idealism of everything working out. It's kind of got that safety of an episode. Action happens and everything's all is kind of well in the end. And of course, I think just being a teenager, anything that's sci-fi or, you know, kind of what the future will be like is, you know, very interesting. I would love things like The Matrix as well uh, at that age. Uh, but I think maybe... Uh, 
as time has gone on, I don't, you know, I had a very different worldview. I don't think everything has to be so ordered or that, you know, uh, there's one way to do to do things. But I just remember as a teenager just being lost in that series. And uh, I suppose the other one I would have loved as well is South Park. <laughs> uh, purely, I think, just because the humour again, it's uh, the kind of black humour of of the the series which actually to this day is still excellent and you know in terms of commentary on life is you know hard to beat Jamie O'Connell let's move to movies and you've got three selections for us we have a clip from one which I leave to the third uh, but tell us why you've picked Network as one of your selections I think Network is another one where the script is so good you know we have this story of a man who, which actually happened in real life, it was based on a real event where a newscaster goes on air and announces that uh, he's been let go by the network and on his final show, he's going to kill himself. And it leads to, you know, the network ratings going through the roof. And I think there's something about that film that feels ageless, because even if you just replace the kind of corporate structure of the networks and all that with kind of present day, the idea of social media and the idea of kind of ratings or likes, mattering more than anything, mattering more than content, mattering more than the truth. Nothing has changed. It's so relevant today. And every time I watch it, I just really am like, we've, we've learned nothing. Everything is still as it, it always was back then. But I, what I love about the film is he talks about, you know, you need to get angry. There's that famous line, you know, I'm as mad as hell. And the importance of people sort of mobilizing and announcing their anger, because I think so much, I think we're, as a society, and I think in many societies, as children, we're taught, you know, if we're sad, we're comforted, whereas actually if we're angry, we're generally told off. So quite often anger is the emotion we're not allowed to have. But this film kind of says you need to get angry. You need to say this isn't good enough. Uh, and that's the only way things are going to change. I think everyone should watch it. I think it gives a new perspective on present day, as I'm sure it did back in the 70s. And what about The Tree of Life, the Terence Malick movie? Why have you picked that? I first, when this film was coming out, I knew Jessica Chastain was in it and uh, Brad Pitt. And I was dying to see it because I, I love those two actors. And I remember watching it and it's beautiful, but it's a series of images. It's almost like a, as a cinematographer's dream. But I remember going, what was that all about? I came to the end because it's, it's very allegorical and, and you kind of have to make your own mind up about what it what it's really about. But years have gone on and I've watched it a few times since and definitely as I've moved into my late 30s because I have found I've gotten more from that film and it's now really is one of my favourite films. It opens up with the premise being set of in life you've two cho a choice. You can choose the way of nature which is trying to force your will on life or the way of grace which is to, to go with what life brings you and life is this tension of what you want and a you know and not and allowing what's going to happen to happen. Uh, and I myself would have grown up in the late 90s and I think I would have had that American ideology of just with enough work and enough force of will, you can get everything. You know, you can do whatever you want. Everything is achievable. But I think what I've learned, which the film actually just is really all about, is how life is also uh, an act of allowing. And there's a point in life where you have to surrender and allow things to happen. And I, I always think of the analogy that I read of you can be standing on the side of the road and your car has a puncture and you can accept the fact that it's happened and just change the puncture quietly. Or you can rail and shout that life has done this to you and change the puncture is still the same. And actually, one is a much more painful way to live. And I think this book is great on all those kind of themes of do you go with the flow 
or do you push against uh, what life is presenting to you? And uh, I think it's a masterpiece. I th- and one that I get more of every time I watch it, maybe every two or three years. And one final one, which we have a clip from the Betty Davis movie, All About Eve, which is when, from the 1940s? 1940s, yes. Why that? I think this is the era of great scripts. I think it's where it's, it's actually very similar to the Royal family. It's where an amazing script meets an amazing cast of characters. I mean, the cast of characters, you know, Betty Davis, Marilyn Monroe features, and they, they really, it's a film about actors playing actors. So on so many levels, you don't know who's actually telling the truth at any point in the film. And it opens up with Eve, the main character who's won essentially the equivalent of an Academy Award. And she's just uh, thanking people in this room. And everyone is scowling. Everyone is like clearly not happy. And what we find out is this apparently nice woman has been incredibly manipulative to work her way to the top in, in a year. And Betty Davis is sensational in this. And in a way, she's playing heightened version of herself in real life and that's where she's at her absolute best and and there's a really famous line from it i think it may be (laughs) the clip you're going to play uh and uh yeah maybe i won't say any more about that but let's hear it's where script and characters merge and are brilliant because in this clip we have betty davis and baxter george sanders and marilyn monroe fasten your seatbelts it's going to be a bumpy night I distinctly remember Addison crossing you off my guest list. What are you doing here? Dear Margot, you were an unforgettable Peter Pan. You must play it again soon. Uh, you remember Miss Caswell, don't you? I do not. How do you do? We've never met. Maybe that's why. Miss Caswell is an actress, a graduate of the Copacabana School of Dramatic Art. Ah. Eve. Good evening, Mr. DeWitt. I had no idea you two knew each other. This must be, at long last, our formal introduction. Until now, we've only met in passing. That's how you met me, in passing. Eve, this is an old friend of Mr. DeWitt's mother, Miss Caswell, Miss Harrington. Miss Caswell, how do you do? Addison, I've been wanting you to meet Eve for the longest time. It could only have been your natural timidity that kept you from mentioning it. You've heard of her great interest in the theatre. We have that in common. Then you two must have a long talk. I'm afraid Mr. DeWitt would find me boring before too long. You won't bore him, honey. You won't even get a chance to talk. Marilyn Monroe there at the end. Okay, Jamie O'Connell is with us for the Culture Club. His new novel, his first novel, Diving for Pearls. So let's talk about music. Jamie, we always ask our guests to recollect, nominate the first piece of music that they ever remember buying. What's yours? I'm quite embarrassed to admit this, but I would have been nine years old and I would have... uh bought a cassette tape of Saturday Night by Wakefield. It was like a dance song in the early 90s and it would have gone into HMV back in Cork City, I'd say in 1993. And uh, I would have picked up a copy. And uh, if I'm honest, if it came on at a wedding, I'd probably dance again to it. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's, I think... It was funny, I was talking to my niece the other day and she was, I was talking about her favourite song and she was talking about Dominic the Donkey and I just realised uh, there's something uh, obviously about being so young and just loving a joyous, upbeat song. Let's hear a bit of Wigfield. <laughs> Set 
Okay, that's your first choice. So let's move to your favourite album. And you've picked The Miseducation of Lauren Hill. Tell us about this selection. I think to this day, it's an album that I can listen to from start to finish. And it's brilliant. Like every single uh, song on, not only does it have catchy riffs and it's just so sing-alongable too, in a way, you know, and you remember the music, but there's such a depth to the the actual lyrics themselves. I, I think it's as close to a perfect album as they come. And uh, I think she was... I mentioned already that I, that era of late 90s where I do think the sort of American culture was at its height and its influence uh, on me, certainly. And I think even just in Ireland in general, uh, you know, the Clinton years and, and all that. So uh, I just think this album is brilliant. And I think to this day, I was even reading, I think it was two years ago, The New Yorker had an article about the sort of the phenomenon that this album was at the time. I mean, Lauren Hill at the time was only 23. And I don't think there was any sense that this was going to be what it was going to be. Uh, I actually just had a look there before the year and I was like, it was in the charts for 81 weeks, like a year and a half, which is just incredible, you know, and it, it moved her into sort of superstardom at the time. And it's just, I think it's that mix of true and raw emotion. I mean, if you listen to the word, lyrics of Zion or something in the song, mixed with just great production, great music, and re- just really, really catchy. Well, let's hear from the miseducation of Lauren Hill, X Factor. education of Lauren Hill. Now, you have a very different selection. We asked you for a favourite band or artist and you've decided to go to opera for us. Why? Uh, well, I had picked Maria Callas. I have been sort of fascinated by her and her life for probably two decades. And I remember in my teenage years, we did A Room with a View, the Merchant Ivory film as part of the Leaving Cert. And it was probably the first time because we had to do the soundtrack as part of that, which which is opera and sopranos singing. And it was the first time I heard it, I suppose, with uh, the background of Italy and uh, the storyline, the sort of romantic storyline. So for the first time as a teenager, I heard opera and I wasn't sort of manic shrieking. It made, you know, it made sense to me in a way. So from then on, I definitely had a taste for, you know, and a curiosity around it. And then over the next sort of 10 years, as I would just read about it, I bought a few albums and I just became very interested in her specifically because there was something in the quality of her voice that just seemed to draw me. And uh, I think there's something in her voice that 
if you compare her to her contemporary at the time, those kind of two competing voices, one was Renata Tibaldi and then there was Maria Callas. And Renata had this really pure, almost sweet voice and, and you know, a bell, a bell-like quality to it. Whereas Maria had kind of lived the music and even if her voice at times was ugly, she was in the scene, she was, she was the great actress with her voice. So if she felt, you know, the music has fully immersed in emotion and her experiencing it. And I think that's why she is who she is. But for me, that quality in her voice, that emotional quality, the suffering is, uh, can be explained not so much from what she taught, but from the life she lived. And I think people know her Anassas years as being, you know, the, the grand, you know, being sort of dumped for Jackie Kennedy and, you know, that the kind of tabloid story around that, but actually her childhood is kind of crazy. She actually uh, grew up through the New York, the depression in New York and, and really suffered, you know, through those years. And then her mother actually took her back to Athens in the mid thirties to, uh, to learn opera from the Athens conservatory. And, uh, they, of course, the outbreak of World War Two happened and she lived through the occupation of Athens from the, the Italians and then the Nazis. So I think there's something that her life brought to her music that made it just that bit more extraordinary than than the people around her and why she then became. I, I don't know that people nowadays realize she the level of fame she had at the time. You know, she sang at uh, JFK's birthday. You know, we all know the Marilyn Monroe clip where she sang. But Maria, she sang on the same night. She was friends with Elizabeth Taylor. You know, she hung out on on the yachts in the Mediterranean with with the Glitterati. And if she hopped off a plane, there'd be fifty reporters there. It was it was Princess Diana territory, and I think just when I because I started collecting her biographies for a number of years and what I realized was they all focus like three quarters of the books would focus on these tempestuous years she had at the end of her life with Onassis. And a few chapters at the start would be focusing in on her early childhood where her mother was had mental health issues and, and attempted suicide in her childhood repeatedly, you know, the occupation of Athens. And so since then, I, I've been working on my next project after this book is to try and capture something of her story, I think, from a more modern day perspective, where we actually think more about those early years of childhood and the impacts they have on later life in a way that maybe wasn't the case 30 or 40 years ago. So that's my, well, my current project. I've okay. just actually finished, I've just finished the first draft and uh, I'm going back into the edits at the moment. But I think her life is truly extraordinary and uh, it makes her art just something particularly special. Let's hear her. This is uh, from a Puccini opera, an aria called O Mio Babino Caro.
We're running short on time, unfortunately, Jamie O'Connell. I've got one last thing I want to ask you about because we asked for a best gig and you've gone for another diva, but a more modern one. Yes, uh, Diana Ross. Yeah, when I, I got some free tickets to Diana Ross in Live at the Marquee uh, in the early 2000s, and I wouldn't have been a particular sort of fan, but I got a free ticket, so I went along. And I've never seen someone with so much charisma on stage. She, it was just her and a, a, I think a pianist, and she sang, she came, she walked down into the aisles and sort of greeted the audience, took flowers, moved around the whole room. I think her security was having a heart attack. And I've never seen a room, so it felt less like a concert and more like a party. And she just was able to hold everyone's attention. And I think I went in there with no expectations. And to this day, I still don't think I've ever been at a concert where she managed to just have all eyes on her, just not based on any big show or but just her singing. And, you know, the fact that she's an album called 30 Number Ones, it was a great hour. Like, you knew every song. I, I, I think she's coming back in next year. Uh, fingers crossed, I think, the, the COVID. Uh, and if so, I will definitely be going again. We have to leave it there. Unfortunately, we've run out of our allotted time. Jamie O'Connell, thank you very much for joining us here on The Last Word of Today FM for The Culture Club. Jamie's debut novel is Diving for Pearls.